Good morning. I want to start off with a word of thanks. First of all, thank you for a whole lot of cards I got last Sunday. Uh, I just cannot, you know, for a guy who makes his living with words, I really don't have the words for your words to me. Um, Thank you. <laughs> it was amazing. Um, we'll leave it at that. Um, uh, on s- another note, of s- another note of thanks that's even more profound than this is that uh, we have a team of people that care for our kids, and each year we have a number of slots from uh, nursery to Sunday school to so many other places. It takes a lot of people in a church this size, a lot of you, in order to fill all those slots, and all those slots are filled. So thank you for that. Uh, Yes, yes. That's not easy, by the way. So uh, especially Sherry and Heidi, who did a lot of bird dogging to make that happen. Um, And some of you are actually serving once a month, which in my mind is still too much. We'd like to get uh, you to a place where you're only serving once every six weeks. So we're continuing to work on that. And again, if some of you who aren't in filling some of those slots would like to help out with this growing kids ministry of ours. Even if you only want to serve once every eight weeks, that will give relief to some of those who are serving uh, once a month. So our next rotation will start in January on, so you'll kind of hear a cycle again probably around uh, November. So thanks for both of that. Um, We are in the midst of uh, this month of August answering this question, or not so much answering the question, but I guess considering this statement in Ephesians chapter 5, that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So as you think of that, especially as a follower of Jesus, those of you here today who consider yourself a follower of Jesus, what does that mean? Uh, We love what Christ loves, right? What does it mean to love the church and give yourself up uh, for her? And we're looking this month at um, her center, her witness, her authority, and her beauty Uh, Last week, we looked at our center. We said that what makes a church a church, the very center of the church, is that the gospel message is at her center. If we don't know the gospel, uh, then we're in big trouble, and and we're people who who spend our lives mastering this uh, message, the gospel. It's not just Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, and that's it. Uh, That's uh, just the beginning. Uh, And this gospel message is all about the exalted Christ. Christ isn't our religious founder. Without Christ, you have no Christianity. He is Christianity. And he's the exalted Christ. He's not just a competing Christ with other religions. He's the Christ who is over all and is reigning right now. And so we, as a result, if we're not a Christ-centered church, we wind up just becoming a club, really. And ultimately, we, followers of Jesus, are called disciples in the Bible, more than Christians, more than believers. And a disciple is not an attender. A disciple is an apprentice. We are in a long-term apprenticeship with Jesus Christ. Uh, So it's much like an Amish uh, Amish barn-raising community. When you you, uh, show up at the place where the Amish are building a barn, there are no benches. Uh, That's the kind of place uh, this is. That's the center of the church. 
the gospel, the exalted Christ, disciples. So today we want to talk about the witness of the church. And when you, when you think of the witness of the church, it might be easy because we tend to use this term this way. When we think of the witness or our witness or my witness, we tend to think of evangelism, the words of Jesus that we communicate to those outside the church. We may think about the way we live in the front of people outside of the church. But today I want you to consider that the witness of the church is not actually that. That's the fruit of the witness of the church. As you're going to see hopefully today from Ephesians chapter 2, when we speak about the witness of the church, we're actually speaking about who we are together as a prerequisite of what we say and do on the outside of the church. What we say and do is really just an overflow of what we actually are. The witness is who we are together when we're together as a family. Let me maybe give you a historical illustration of this a little bit. Uh, there is a community uh, called the, um, the Moravian Church. It started in a little place in Germany. They called their, their little place Hernhut, a German name for uh, it, it basically refers to uh, under the Lord's watch. And this 200-house sort of commune, if you will, was made up of religious refugees from all over Europe in the uh, early 1700s. Uh, think about this place. You know, you had uh, Anabaptists that came there. You had Lutherans uh, that were there. You had former Catholics and Separatists and Reformed people. And all of these people came together, and they lived on the property of a very wealthy German count, a man by the name of Zinzendorf. Now, Zinzendorf had come to Christ in a rather uh, powerful way, actually by viewing a piece of art. And in the process, Hernhut, or I mean Zinzendorf, uh, began to realize that there's a big difference between what was traditional European Christianity at that time, which was, here are the attributes of God, now go obey him, and we will enforce that obedience to a whole different way of understanding what Christianity was all about, preaching Christ and him crucified so that as people heard the gospel, obedience was never forced, it flowed. And so he created this community. Now you can imagine um, uh, what this community was like, but uh, first of all, we'd be naive to not think there were serious squabbles in a community like this. Uh, and as a result, Zinzendorf himself moved out of his palatial estate and, and moved into his whole family into the academic building. And there he became one of them. And he would constantly visit the homes of all the people in Hernhut, uh, counseling them with the scriptures. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this place that my guess most of us would not volunteer to live there. Uh, Zinzendorf and 12 other elders ruled this whole commune. Uh, they, were, they, they oversaw everything from building maintenance to who you married. This was a place where they, they, uh, they had an educational system that they established. And every morning, they, a whole community would meet in the great hall for morning prayers. Then they'd, they'd go out into their fields and they'd work. And by the way, in summer, that meant they met at four in the morning. In winter, they met at five in the morning. Uh, and then each evening, they would meet back again to pray and to sing Saturdays were days for community activities, but they also had a, a time of congregational prayer on Saturday, 
And then, of course, Sunday morning, you had that morning prayer, then you had the worship service, and then you had evening service. Uh, so again, I, I suspect that would be a bit of high, high bar for, for most of us. But here was a man with a vision, Zinzendorf, and great wealth, who was coupled with a whole bunch of willing-hearted people. And most church historians would date the beginning of Protestant missionary enterprise to this little village, Hernhut, in Germany. Think about this. By the late 1700s, in other words, in less than about 40 years from the beginning of this little community, this group of people sent missionaries to Russia, to India, to Ceylon, to, to Native Americans here, to the West Indies, to Suriname, to Central America, to the Gold Coast, to South Africa, to Greenland, to Labrador. And what was amazing about them is their approach was not the traditional approach for most missionary enterprises, even later on, which was to come in and change the culture through colonization and convert people. They actually reached people by being the leaven in a community. They, they came in and they just sort of became one of the community. Some of them reached slaves by becoming slaves themselves. They left their children behind for years, cared for by the Hernhut community. One man who became very enamored by them was on a boat from England to America. And he, this man was, had, we know all about this because he, he was a journaling freak. And this man journaled about the amazing testimony of these Moravians. He had never seen anything like it. He'd been raised in the church. He believed in God, but when he got around these people and watched how they respond to crisis, watched how they, they worked on unity together, he realized he was really not a follower of Jesus Christ at all. He believed a lot about God, but Christ himself wasn't in his heart. When this guy got back from America, he was determined to go to this place called Hernhut. And he went there, and this is what he wrote, I would have gladly spent my life there. Oh, when shall this Christianity cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. His name was John Wesley. He and his brother Charles were the founders of what we know today as the Methodist Church. So this is what I'm speaking about when I talk about a witness. Something stupendously contrasting to all other communities in the world that happens in one place only. The church. So we're going to look at that through Ephesians chapter 2 today, if you have a Bible, turn there. I think some of that text is in your bulletin. I'll say again what this is. This book of Ephesians basically describes what the church is better than any of the other 66 books in the entire Bible. It is a gospel-mastering, Christ-adoring, organically united family intent on building a temple in the midst of a war zone. This temple is a safe house for all peoples, not just for some peoples, but for all peoples. A radically beautiful safe house in the midst of a war zone. And so in this particular chapter here in Ephesians chapter 2, the first thing we're going to see is who we are all, who we all are by nature as human beings. This is, by the way, this is not an easy thing to listen to for most people outside of the church. And quite frankly, I think it's not easy to listen to even for people inside of the church. So here we go. 
Ephesians 2, verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's just a fancy name for Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So the first description of who we are, who we are born to be, all of us, by nature, we are children of wrath. What does that mean? Well, there's a famous saying that we sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. Let me say it again. We sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. In other words, sin is not what you do. It is who you are by nature. Which, by the way, when, you're, when you come to Christ... When you, are, when you give your life to Christ, when you surrender to him, recognizing that that's who you are, a sinner, and according to 2 Corinthians 5, God takes all of the righteousness of his son Jesus, transfers it to you, and takes all of your sin nature and transfers it to him. That means that you, we can say that all your past, present, and future sins, plural, are forgiven because your very nature has been declared clean. The reason the root, the tree produces rotten fruit is because it's systemically diseased. And so when you come to Christ, you are pronounced clean. Yes, there's still a lot of rotten fruit hanging on the tree for a long time, but it slowly falls off as God makes new beautiful fruit to replace it. Now, so we're not, it's not, sin is not what we do, it's who we are. And that's because of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Because of them, we're born, as it says here, spiritually dead, non-responsive to God. Human beings are not responsive to God, never have been, never will be. They are born dead, unresponsive to God. In fact, God's presence is a threat to their so-called freedom. Look what happened to Adam and Eve after they sinned. Instead of welcoming the God who was walking in the garden, they hid from him. That's who we are by nature. It's who we are naturally. It's as natural as breathing to a human being to constantly reject God's rule over them for something else. They want to rule over God. That is who we are by nature. We do not naturally love God. We naturally hate God. He is a threat to us. I don't care what you observe in humanity. This is what the word of God has declared for thousands of years without one hesitation in, in its description. And therefore, it's right for God to damn all of hum humanity to a, an eternity without him forever and ever and ever because their entire life they have been choosing a life without him. And so God finally gives to human beings what they've wanted their whole life. The only thing that they don't realize is that right now while they're still living in this world, they're under the goodness of God even though they don't even realize it. Someday they won't even be under the goodness of God. That's the hard truth here in these first three verses. Now, also notice in verse 11 and 12, where not only are we children of, 
wrath by nature, we're also far off outsiders. Speaking primarily here to Gentiles, not to Jews, I'm assuming most everyone here is a Gentile. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, and by the way, Gentiles is just a fancy name for anybody who's not a Jew. Uh, remember that you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, notice the quotes, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I want you to notice something interesting here that could get missed. According to this, these two verses here, especially the last part of verse 12, there is no salvation and no God and no hope outside the walls of God's people. There is no salvation, no hope, and no God outside the walls of God's people. You mean the Jews who, in verse 11, you mean the Jews who treated Gentiles as sort of uh, these unclean outsiders who thought of themselves as God's favored people better than everyone else because they performed some kind of physical ritual circumcision? You're telling me that that's God's home address and you can't find God anywhere else outside of those people? I'm not telling you that. I'm telling you that that's what God says right here. So that is the only place you can find God and that is the only place you can find hope. Otherwise, every other place you perish. Now, that's why I believe in verse 11, he, the only command in this section of chapter two is the word remember, verse 11. And he says it again, verse 12, remember. What's he saying to remember? Remember this, do not fall into the same trap that happened to the Jews. Don't fall into the same trap that caused God to retreat from the Jews. The trap of thinking that God favors me because of me. He doesn't. God doesn't favor you because of you. Let's read on in, in Ephesians chapter 2. Two words that show up in the Bible in some of the most unique places. They begin in verse 4, but God. But God. This is what happens. Who we are all by nature if it was not for but God. Two words followed by six verses where God takes all the initiative, does all the work, and even supplies the faith we need to be saved. You follow that? God takes all the initiative, does all the work, and even supplies the very faith we need in order to be saved. And notice how we're described here. We are loved, verse 4. We are made alive together. And, and boy, I just, ah, I just do not have time for this. But I really wish I did. <laughs> there is, there's a sermon, I'm telling you, at everything here. Did you know that the Bible has a habit of saying that we've been loved, past tense? It doesn't say that God loves us. It says God loved. And by the way, saying God loved you is far more potent than saying God loves you means that at one point in time, through what Christ did in the past tense, God did everything for you, and, you're the re and, and the rest of humanity is the repercussions of that. 
It's not like you have to even doubt that he still loves you because he loved completely and forever for you in what he did for you when Christ died and rose again. But notice we're not only loved, we've been made alive together. We're now responsive to God because of God. He's raised us up. We've been saved and he's raised us up. So wait a second. You're saying we're already resurrected? Yes. It's past tense. It's as good as done. There's some sense in which you're already beginning to experience the resurrection of a new life. And then it goes on to say, not only that, you're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Christ is reigning over the whole world right now, and you're the beneficiary of that because you're reigning with him now. But there's also a sense in which this has already started, but it hasn't fully yet been realized. So verse 7 says, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, if you've, if you've experienced anything wonderful about Jesus, I'm telling you right now, all you have is a scent. You haven't even begun to feast yet. So all these things are because of what? Well, it says it over in the text, because God's rich in mercy, because he loves us with a great love, because it's by his grace, twice we're told that, because we're given faith as a gift. For verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that faith is not your own doing, it's a gift of God. And then notice verse 10, we're God's workmanship. I always think of that as uh, when I make something in my workshop, you know, I, I want to be able to say, behold, you know. Uh, and of course, uh, I'm not quite to that stage yet, but uh, when God makes something, it's like he tells the whole universe, look at what I did. He's just so proud of what his work is. You, you're, you're his workmanship. I know you don't feel like it a lot of the times, but that is who you are. Notice that you're not just saved from, you're saved to you're, verse 10, you've been saved to good works that God's already prepared for you, and you rightfully ask, what are those works? Glad you asked. The answer, of course, is found in the next but God in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you've been brought near. Not only have you been brought near, it goes on to say that you've been made uh, uh, into one, verse 14. Uh, you've been made into a new people, verse 15. Uh, you, you have been made into one body, and why is that? Well, let's, let's read it together and notice the reasons we've been made that way. Verse 13, now, you, now in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off have been brought near by what? By the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace, who made both into one and broke down in what? His flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. He, he abolished all of the commandments that were expressed in ordinances. He wanted to make a new man in place of the two making peace. And he reconciled us both to God in one body through what? The cross, thereby killing the hostility. So in other words, Christ's sacrificial death and this, by the way, would make a whole lot more sense to people in the, in the first century than it would to you and I, because most of these Gentiles that uh, Paul is writing to in this letter were around Jewish people. They were familiar with the Jewish temple. And in the Jewish temple, there were sections of this Jewish temple. Uh, you, 
if you were a non-Jew, you could only go into the outer rim of this temple. There was a big uh, five to six foot wall. You couldn't go beyond it. Only Jews could go beyond it. And in that place, uh, if you were a woman, you couldn't go further still because only men could get on even farther inside. And of those men, only priests who were men could get into the very center of the temple and only one high priest could get into the Holy of Holies. What was that all about? Boy, that sure wouldn't fly in America. Well, the, everything in this temple visually symbolized not human superiority, not which people were better than other people. It symbolized human inferiority. It showed how difficult it was for sinners to approach a holy God. This was a place of constant sacrifice. This was a place where only the most qualified through a whole bunch of rituals could, could get into the center of God and only infrequently. And so along comes Christ, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And all of these required barriers that God himself set up in the temple, by the way, all these required barriers that were, that were supposed to show all of humanity how much they needed a, a sacrifice greater than the sacrifices they had, these barriers turned out to be self-righteous. Uh, the, the people used them to think of themselves as better than others. So Christ comes along and he is the sacrifice to end all sacrifice and to obliterate every barrier and basically, as someone has said, create a democracy of sinners where we're all the same, where we're all the same. And so that brings us to this beautiful sort of applicational section here in verses 14 through 18 about Christ, who is our priest. What's all this leading to? Well, it's leading to something that is so precious and unique about the church's witness, what we are together, that is so radically different than every other thing outside the walls of the church. So here it is. He himself is our peace. He's made us all into a one people. And we're told in verse 17, he preached peace to you who are far off, peace to those who are near, so that through him we may both have our access in one spirit to the Father. There is no vertical rec reconciliation, or there's no horizontal reconciliation without vertical reconciliation. There's no way possible for human beings to have peace with one another unless they first have peace with God. And so... That means something pretty amazing. The only hope for peace on this planet is the church. The only hope for peace on this planet is the church. By the way, that doesn't mean world peace in the sense of the end of all hostilities. We're in a war zone, and until the king returns, we won't actually have world peace. But until then, in the war zone, if you want to find peace in a war zone, the church is the only place you're going to find it. In other words, we're a place where we have the ability to love our enemies. So let me just describe to you what that means. Because Christ is our peace, the church is an all-people family. There are actually no barriers whatsoever to coming here. But let me say this. We're an all-people family, but we're not an all-beliefs family. We're not an all-religions religions family. 
We're not an all-lifestyle family. And guess what? We're also not an all-equal-authority family either because there's different levels of authority in the church and different levels of responsibility in the church. But because Christ is our peace, that means tribalism and cliques around our education, around how much money we make, around our politics, around whether I'm a man or a woman, whether I'm single or married, whether I am old or young, what I look like physically, those kind of cliques and tribes have no place whatsoever in the church of Christ. They can't coexist with him. Racism suffocates in the temple of Christ. And because Christ is our, our peace, we are a family where conflicts are resolved, not swept under the rug, not griped about behind someone else's back, not discussed over at the next church because we were afraid of offending someone from our previous church to bring those issues up. You see, because Christ is our peace, there's one thing that we as a community are famous for. Really, we are. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us, you know, how to pray, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, etc. Give us this day our daily bread. And then he gave one descriptor of all the things that could describe us. It wasn't love. It was forgiveness. If there's anything we're famous for, it's this excessive generosity of forgiveness. Man, you cannot outsin these people. They will just keep forgiving you over and over again. That's what we're famous for. In fact, so much so that Jesus even said something that's usually pretty disturbing for people. They don't read this, the next line after the Lord's Prayer. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But hey, by the way, if you don't, you can forget it. That really kind of disturbs us. We think, wait a second, whoa, that makes me, yeah, it's meant to have that kind of feeling on you. The idea there, of course, is that if you belong to Jesus... And you're withholding forgiveness? And you don't eventually start flowing it out of you like crazy? You have every reason to question whether you belong to him. You see, Jesus didn't wipe, just wipe our slate clean. He got in our skin. He, he gets us. Jesus knows how incredibly difficult it is to love our enemies, to love someone who scars you for life. I've told people the story about a situation in our own family recently that it is so easy to say you love your enemies until you actually have one. But because we have been greatly loved and lavishly forgiven, we have an excess of it for any and all we encounter. And because Christ is our peace, guess what? We no longer see people for what they are. We see every human being for what they could become in Christ. That's what 2 Corinthians tells us. We stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ like that. Oh, how differently we know him now. That means that anyone that belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. That's how we view all of human beings. We're not naive about people. And we're not cynical. But in a world that idolizes the outside... This temple is a place of hopeful realism. 
Now, some of you have been thinking, hopefully by this time, because that was certainly my intent in leading you down this path. <laughs> my intent was to say, hey, but wait a second. What you just described, that's not the reputation of the church. The church doesn't have that kind of public reputation. And, and, and honestly, that's not my experience of the church, to which I want to say just a couple things. First of all, reputation, it's like surveys and polls. Don't waste your time paying attention to it. Reputation, pub, the public reputation of the church is as subjective as the day is long. Uh, it's rarely an indicator of the truth. It may have some truth in it, but I would say we ought not to spend too much time thinking about our public reputation. As to your experience, I understand your experience. I've seen people who have been abused by church leadership and are going to wear those scars for the rest of their life. By the way, I've seen congregations chew up pastors and leave nothing behind. That's a hurtful, heart-wrenching thing. But here's what Ephesians 2 is doing. It's describing the church as she truly is and as she's becoming. And that's what we need to focus on. That's what we need to focus on. We are like painters who are looking at the true picture out there and trying to paint that picture under the canvas of our community. And since we're disciples, as we learned last week, that means we're going to spend everything we've got for the rest of our life trying to copy what we see in Ephesians 2 onto our actual community right here for the glory of God. And that's why 19 and 22 go on to describe that we are both people who belong and people who are becoming. You are no longer strangers, aliens, your fellow citizens with the saints. You're members of God's household. You belong to something. And not only that, something's happening to you. You're, you're being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's probably the Old Testament and New Testament. Christ Jesus himself being the very cornerstone, the stabilizing stone that ties the whole Bible and the whole story of history together, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are at this very moment being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. You are so much more than you. You are so much more than you. That's why here's my crescendo passage that we come to. Uh, that Lindsay read for us today in Hebrews chapter 12. I want you to think about this for just a moment. There's so much in that chapter. I'd encourage you to go back and read it. But you know when you come to Red Cedar Church as a follower of Jesus Christ, do you realize what's going on here that you can't see? You're actually coming to the city of the living God. The new Jerusalem has already, be, had the footers have already been laid for it. You may not feel like you're part of this, but that is who you are part of. You are coming to it. A group of angels are with us right now. They're in festival clothing. You may not feel like this is a time for a great Thanksgiving fest, but they are having a massive Thanksgiving fest. They see so much more than we do. That's happening at this very moment. They are here in our presence. We are part of the firstborn Every time we come together, our royal identity is like a screen being refreshed, reminding us of who we are. Men and women, you are kings and queens of Narnia. Do not forget it. 
You may not feel like royalty. You are royalty. That's what we're, we're part of the firstborn. And we come to God, the judge. Oh, don't you just rejoice in the fact that someday all will be made right because God is a judge. And he's the God who our very space replicates his supremacy and his nearness. Everything about this space is supposed to remind us of that. Do you know what happens when people come into the presence of God in the Bible, even holy people? They always fall on their faces. Why? Because the most natural thing in the world is to be afraid because of the majesty and wonder of God. And do you know what Jesus always says to people when he uncloaks himself and they have that response? Don't be afraid. The majesty of God and the nearness of God. And the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Do you realize that everyone who has believed in Jesus Christ from, the, from Adam and Eve on are right now very much alive and very much aware of what's happening in this very room right now? That every time the church gathers, they're like in a balcony, in a mezzanine watching us? Hebrews 12 points that out at the beginning of it. These are the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Revelation says all of these saints are waiting for the race to finish and we're all in it. Now, they're, they're in a great place, but that place isn't finished yet. And they're watching this temple be, being built. And they're very much participating with us. And finally, to the very focal point of this whole crowd, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Here is God in all his visibility and invincibility as we come together even for this bread and cup now. And he is the child of Isaiah 9, the government of the world rest on his shoulders. And we're told there is no stopping the increase of his government until from sea to shining sea, the king shall reign. Why is that? Because of the last descriptor. Because of the sprinkled blood. When those nails went through the body of Christ, they announced the beginning of the end of the fall. And we have been swept up in it. In other words, what I'm trying to say here is that this is no mere church service that you come to on Sunday morning. This is where the world that is passing away encounters the world that's coming to stay. Every Sunday. You don't have to experience that, but you do have to know that. And the more you know that and believe that, you will begin to experience it. So I want to invite the guys serving this morning to come forward and the worship team. This table that we celebrate every week here, the sprinkled blood that we just spoke about, that's what we celebrate here. And this is open for any of you here who recognize, as he said in the very beginning, that you're a sinner, that only Christ can save you. And that you're not only saved by that Savior, you willingly have surrendered your life to that Savior who is now a king and who's reigning. And you're coming, even as you come today, you're coming to say, I love the church. I want to give myself up for her like Christ did. In fact, uh, and, and we'll do that in just a minute. We'll come down the center aisle and then I'll eventually lead all of us after we've got bread and cup and taking it together. But... I want you to see that last description here in verse 22 of chapter 2, by the Spirit. The Spirit is up to something so much more than just changing you. The Spirit is up to summing up everything in the world to Christ 
That's what Ephesians chapter 1 says. Which means then that one of the most freeing things we can do when we leave here this morning is to stop focusing on yourself. Your one little unfinished majestic tile in the temple and to focus on the temple. This glorious thing that Christ uh, is building. We're like people in the, who go skiing uh, in, um, in Colorado or maybe go to Florida in the winter. And you know, they come back with their faces all tanned and people say, wow, where'd you go? The idea is that when we come together, we get a suntan. You know what I mean? S-O-N. And so our words and our works and our ways are an overflow of being together in the presence of Christ with our tanned faces so that people, when they look at our words and our works and our ways, say, where have you been? That's what we want. That's the witness of the church. Let's pray. Lord, we would be dead but for you. We would be unloved but for you. We would be children of wrath, not raised and seated and expecting the immeasurable riches of your grace even more in the future but for you. We would be hostile to every other ethnic and economic and educational entity. We would be full of tribalism and cliques, but for you. Today, we take the body and blood of Christ who has abolished that hostility between you and us and us and others. He is our peace, and we come grateful.